Church of Christ presents Two Things Are True. The reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman presented on Sunday, February 4th, 2024. Please pray with me. Holy One, our heart's true home, fill the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts with your love, for surely you are the ground and truth of our being, the hope and salvation of our lives. Amen. Two things can be true. Life is so beautiful, and life is so hard. You are not alone if these last few years it has felt harder and harder to hold on to these two truths at the same time. If you find that you want to take one out or the other, that you have to work to stay hopeful, or that you are increasingly numbing yourself and ignoring the news, not pausing and refreshing, but hiding and anesthetizing and tuning out. As Kate Bowler often says, sometimes the math equations we try to do in our head to make the hard and the beautiful of life balance just don't work. Sometimes keeping an internal ledger, trying to stay on balance, does work. It does help when the disappointments and frustrations of life are real, but essentially minor, when you have waited patiently for a parking spot, blinker on, only to have some whippersnapper in a small speedy car zip in in front of you, and you've make your, made your way into Fred Meyer all the way from the back of the parking lot in the pouring rain, I may be telling a truthful personal story, <laughs> only to find that no, the doctor's office has not called your prescription in, although you spent 25 minutes on hold with them before you got in the car. When the frustrations are real, but really just frustrations, it is easy to check our internal ledger and remind ourselves that yes, I will be wet through by the time I get home, and I won't have my prescription, and I'll have to come back out later, but I have a home. And in that home are warm slippers, and a telephone, and a call to make to my good friend. And so we are consoled, and the ledger evens out and puts our precarity and our frustration in context. But the math doesn't always add up. You are not alone if you occasionally feel more battered by the bad news of the world than encouraged by the good news we gather to celebrate. You are not alone if the increasingly digital world feels oddly less streamlined and more difficult to navigate. Those, all those tools that are meant to make life accessible and easy and at the push of a button somehow don't seem user-friendly because the systems are set up not for us, but for someone to be making a lot of money from us. You are not alone if you feel both compassion and guilt tinged with hopelessness when you encounter houseless encampments here in Portland and wonder if there is such a thing as a solution and if there is, how to work for it and push for it and where to begin. 
If life feels a little bit more like a grind than it used to, you are not alone. Our temptation is to stay enraged and inflamed and self-righteous without taking any steps to make changes. That's one temptation. Another temptation is to turn inward, to wallow in any of the thousands of self-care regimens being peddled by social media influencers. The kind of regimens that are presented not just as a way of taking good and tender care of yourself, that's a lovely thing to do, but these are presented as pathways to meaning in life. I don't know about you, but I don't think there is any amount of kale and collagen and exercise that is going to give my life purpose. But the possibilities offered online are endless, and they are so beautifully presented. They're seductive. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, if I turn inward and just focus on self-growth and self-improvement, all will be well. But as a colleague reminded me in the beautiful sermon she preached last week, we, of course, are called and covenanted not to just turn inward. According to Mark, the opening day of Jesus' ministry was a Sabbath day. He began by amazing the synagogue community with the authority of his teaching and by healing a man who was possessed by a spirit freeing him from death-dealing forces. That was last week's reading. Today, we heard how the rest of the day went. Jesus went home with his new disciple, healed Simon's mother-in-law, apparently ate a meal that she served, and then met crowds at the door and went right on healing and liberating. In one day, Mark sums up what will define the heart of Jesus' mission, healing, restoration, and hope over and over again. The healing of the possessed man in the synagogue gave us a sense of what the healing was freedom from. The man was released and made free from dark forces that wanted to control him, death-dealing forces, oppression. This week's story points us to what Jesus frees us for. Jesus came and took Simon's sick mother-in-law by the hand and lifted her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, the fact that Simon's mother-in-law is never dignified with a name, and that she seems to have stood up from her sickbed and gone straight to serving the rest of the household, can grate on a modern ear. It raises my feminist hackles, if I'm honest. Which parent especially, I'm sorry men, but which, especially, which mother or grandmother or auntie in the room has not felt that it was required of them to start to get up immediately that the fever left them and start to serve other people? Not one second more for you. But a little focus on the language of the text helps. Simon's mother-in-law is raised she is raised with the very same verb used again in the gospel to describe Jesus raised in the resurrection. She is restored and empowered and reinvigorated. She is set free from her illness. 
The word that is used to describe her service, diakonos, is the same root word that gives us the word deacon. Unnamed she may be, nevertheless, she is the first deacon of the church. What's more, when you look at it, when you dig deep into the Greek, the word literally means to kick up dust. This is an active, practical, change-the-world sort of work. She is lifted up to serve. She is freed for ministry, to kick up some dust and get some things done. She is the pioneer who blazes the trail for the anonymous woman who causes a little dust-up near the end of the gospel by anointing Jesus in the presence of everyone and to the disciples' shock and dismay. She is the pioneer for the group of women who stay at the crucifixion and keep watch and remain with Jesus' vandalized body, even as the male disciples slip away. Jesus came to offer us liberation from death-dealing forces and to free us for service to one another. This is the good news of the realm of God, a beloved community of wholeness, mutuality, and service. In this cultural moment of discouragement, we rely on that call and on our covenanted community to sustain our hope because the needs of the world are so large. Last week, we heard from Beth Ronk from Immigrant Mutual Aid Coalition about the incredible success and growth of that organization in the very few years since its founding. The key to its strength and its beauty is in the name, Mutual Aid. Woven into that organization is the assumption that everyone has need and everyone can offer assistance. Everyone has something to offer. This seems to me to be a hallmark of the beloved community, the realm of God. Now, without romanticizing the poverty that exists on many reservations, and without stereotyping and villainizing everyone who lives in suburbia, I want to share an experience I had on the Pine Ridge Reservation. As many of you know, there's an organization I love to go and visit there. I've been three or four times, and I hope to go again this summer. The first trip I took there was with a group of teenagers, energetic, kind teenagers, all of whom, without exception, were from very affluent families. The first lesson of the first day that we were there was to move beyond our understanding of what we thought we were doing there. We thought that we were going to give from our bounty, from our wealth and our health and the kids' youth and energy, give from all that we had to those who had less. It's a kind impulse. But we didn't even realize that we had arrived with an attitude of stooping down. And then, on the very first evening, we were called to go in for dinner, elders first. And then we were gathered for an evening of history-telling and were given a blessing and a smudging. We began to realize that we were not there just to give, but also to receive. We received food and recipes, stories, and songs, and welcome. We were gifted with the honest telling of our shared indigenous and non-indigenous history in that place, 
the history of the massacre at Wounded Knee told by the ancestor, descendant of a survivor. We were told the true history of the formation of that reservation and the long trail of treaties all broken by the US government. We were given the gift of honesty. We went to serve and we were served. We went to give and we received. It was humbling and elating. The message of the beloved community is that everyone has needs, or will do soon, and everyone has gifts to offer. The call and covenant of discipleship is to be ready to serve and to be willing to be served, to be alert and on the lookout for the places where your gifts are needed, to be open-hearted, to receive. For many of us, raised as we have been under a mixture of late capitalism and the Protestant work ethic, especially those of us who may enjoy financial stability and a good education and professional competence, it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we have arrived where we are by our own strength alone. We don't feel able to ask for help. We give as an expression of our caring hearts, of course, but also, sometimes, if we're honest, as an expression of our strength. We might find it hard to accept help or to acknowledge help that we have already received. And yet, I know that every one of us has stories of help that arrived when our need was obvious and clear. I have a story that always pops in my mind to remind me that it is okay to need help and that help can come. It was the very first time I had driven more than a mile in the snow. And as all of you know, I don't like to drive in the snow. And here's why. I was driving our then little family of three from my parents' home in Philadelphia to our home in the Shenandoah Valley. We were about two hours into that five-hour drive, and the flurries that had been drifting down and not causing us any alarm when we left had turned into a driving snowstorm. I was, had my hands clutched on the wheel, and I was just beginning to relax and think, I've got the hang of this. I can do it. When we went over a small bridge and I hit a patch of black ice that had been covered over with snow and hidden, I yelled to David, my main raised husband, what do I do? What do I do? And to my great dismay, he said, how should I know? <laughs> I don't remember exactly how it happened that we slid off the road, but I do remember saying, okay, shouting, what do you mean, how should I know? You're from Maine. <laughs> That's what stands out about how it happened. Our car sailed across three lanes of the highway, which were was momentarily clear of any other traffic, and slid backward into a wide open grassy median. And there we came to a stop. I turned off the car, and David and I looked at each other and whipped our heads around to make sure Caleb was okay. He was sleeping serenely. And we broke out into a sort of crying laughter or laughing, crying. And then suddenly, within 90 seconds of turning the car off, we were surrounded. 
two pickup trucks, one on each side of our tiny little colt. One of the drivers hopped out of his vehicle, came over and said, oh, this is a terrible spot, happens all the time. Follow me, I can show you how to get back on the highway. Buck will come behind us to make sure you make it. And that's what they did. One led, the other played sweeper, and two minutes later, we were back on the highway and safely on our way home. Our unexpected saviors tooted merrily and off they drove into the night. Unexpected, unlooked-for help arrived just in time. I wonder what your stories are of when unexpected help arrived just in time for you. I wonder what your stories are, and I expect to hear about them at coffee hour, of when you have been the one to extend unexpected help or encouragement. When have you been part of one of these beautiful interventions committed with grace and generosity, breaking down our illusions of singularity and self-sufficiency? Jesus lifted up a sick woman and then was waited on her before going on offering his healing to the crowds clustered around the door. The next morning he went off by himself before greeting or tending to anyone else before receiving food from the hands of his host, he went off by himself to pray. We are all, every one of us, needy. We are all, every one of us, gifted. And we are all of us invited to be part of the realm of God in giving and receiving and in turning to God in prayer to underweave the whole thing. The world has need of every one of your gifts, your clarity and vision, your political activism in calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, your tenderness to your ill family member, your gifts of hospitality and welcome, your gifts as a mechanic or a scholar or a musician or a parent or a translator or a poet, the gift of your simple time and presence in another person's life. In times of great international peril, with war in Sudan and Ukraine and Gaza, with bombings and rumors of war across the Middle East, with American money fueling and arms fueling war, American bombs dropping, with all of this in the news and in our hearts, our hearts sometimes cry out for the kingdom of God to come immediately to overpower the kingdoms and nations of this world, even our own nation, as it wreaks violence in the world. But the kingdom of God that Jesus announced and enacted in every act of his life was not the kind of realm that meets violence with violence or draws boundaries to defend. Instead, the realm of God is like a good infection weaving across time and space, a beloved community of belonging where our strength is renewed and our hope is restored, a realm where the doors are always flung wide open. Two things are true. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. But the most true thing, the good news we hold fast to, is that we are not alone. We are under the shelter of God's presence and woven together in love and mutuality. 
listen, listen. 